Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today we are interviewing Professor Kevin Rooney. Professor Rooney is primarily a consultant in anaesthetics and intensive care, but has a lot of interests outside of that, a lot of research interests, which we're going to touch upon a wee bit later. Um, so first off, Professor Rooney, thank you very much for, for giving us your time today. Okay, thank you, Owen, and please call me Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Kevin. Well, look, Kevin, you, when I was looking at your biography, there was an incredible amount of interest, incredible amount of things that, that, that you do outside of your normal clinical work. So I just wanted to start with uh, asking you, what is the keys to being productive and content and successful, I guess, in, in medicine? Uh, I think the, the, what's really key is, is joy in work. Okay, if you don't enjoy it, you're, you're not going to do it. So uh, there's an old Irish proverb, which you'll probably like own, which says, when you come across a wall, uh, throw your hat over the wall and go and collect it. Uh, I think that's been key to my career. Uh, I had no aspirations to be a professor. I had no aspirations to be a clinical lead. I had no aspirations to lead a national campaign. But opportunities presented themselves, and I said, why not? Uh, I enjoy it, which is very important, I, but it actually makes a difference. And I realise now through some of my academic work, it is as rewarding as my clinical work. And actually, if I can get a group of trainee doctors, uh, nurses or other healthcare professionals to look about uh, how they interact with people on a daily basis, how they recognise a deteriorating patient, in some ways I can save more lives that way than I can do as an intensive care clinician. Well, look, let's think about some of the things that you're actually involved in. And what I was hoping would be the benefit of this podcast would be to take some of your expertise about the things that you're working on and how we can take some of that into emergency medicine to deliver a better service. So let's start off with sepsis, if you don't mind. Okay. So you were, um, or are, I should say, National Clinical Lead for Sepsis in Scotland, and you're also a council member in the Global Sepsis Alliance. Now, sepsis has been massive in the last few years, you know, lots of you know, big uh, research papers, lots of discussions, lots of topics. So what do you think, if you could simplify it for the emergency uh, department, for the resource room, what do you believe are the key factors uh, that will make the biggest benefit to the sick septic patient in the resource room? Okay, so there, there are three big randomised controlled trials for sepsis. And there's a promise, there's a rise in the process. So big randomised controlled trials that took part in Australia, in Europe and North America. People normally say, well, there are three negative studies. And in critical care, we love, we love doing negative studies where we actually prove things wrong. But actually, these three studies are very important. Uh, some people may think it shows that goal-directed therapy doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't show that. What all three of these studies show is that what's important for the septic patient is early recognition and early response. And the response includes antibiotics uh, and IV fluids, an assessment of the, uh, the adequacy of the circulation. So all, if you look at these big three randomised controlled trials, their control arm is far better than the, the, the treatment arm than all the historical sepsis studies. So these are very three positive studies showing the importance of early recognition of a deteriorating patient. And what's the best way to recognise a septic patient? I know there was a lot of debate about you know, scoring systems mm -hmm. and how best to recognise. What, what do you believe is the best system okay. um, to, to identify the septic so, patient? So, I'm, you know, sepsis is a life threatening uh, organ dysfunction due to infection. Uh, and the best way to recognise sepsis uh, is through the National Early Warning Scoring System. 
Okay, so uh, you have six parameters plus two points for oxygen, uh, where you score anywhere between zero and three. Uh, the National Early Warning Scoring System has been validated uh, in the hospital setting, it's been validated in the pre-hospital setting, uh, and it's been validated in septic patients. When your patient triggers uh, on the National Early Warning Scoring System, I would take that as an opportunity to say, could this deterioration be due to infection? So the, the National Early Warning Scoring System news is actually proven to be better than the 33 other uh, early warning scoring systems that are out there. Some of your listeners may be aware of the, the QSOFA criteria, so a uh, conscious level, respiratory and systolic blood pressure. QSOFA, the studies have all shown, is not as good as the National Early Warning System. It works, but it's not as good. And the reason it's not as good is because QSOFA is three criteria, NEWS is seven. The three criteria within NEWS actually uh, is, is, the three criteria within QSOFA is in NEWS, so it's no, no surprise. Uh, people may also talk about things like, uh, could, should you use red flag sepsis to detect uh, patients with sepsis? You can have no red flags criteria, but still have a new score of 12. So your high clinical risk of deterioration and unanticipated cardiac arrest and ICU admission. So by far, your national early warning scoring system is the best way to detect a deteriorating patient with or without sepsis. So what about fluids? That was a lot of debate over the last few years. How, how much is enough for, or how would you recommend, considering we don't have some of the, the maybe the equipment that you would have in an intensive care setting, what, what do you, would you think is the best way to decide how much fluid to give a sepsis patient in the resource room? So the, the amount of fluid a patient requires is purely down to the, that individual patient. And as a result, we have to tailor our treatment accordingly. Uh, I would guide fluid resuscitation by their vital sign parameters. Uh, by their lactate. Uh, we can, it has to go hand in hand with clinical assessment of the adequacy of circulation. Uh, this assessment of the adequacy of circulation can be done from anything from a capillary return uh, to passive leg raising uh, to echocardiography to lactate. Whichever way you want to use, you want to assess the responsiveness of that person to fluid. And we had an m and meeting recently where we were talking about prognostication in sepsis mm. and we were we were chatting about the high mortality rate associated with uh, an inadequate response to fluid resuscitation. So if you remain hypotensive or your lactate remains elevated, but we don't often immediately think that that's a patient that we should be putting into intensive care, even though the, I think the mortality rate can be as high as 40% or above. Mm -hmm. Is there prognostication factors at which, at the level of which that we should be immediately referring to intensive care? Uh, so there's no magic lactate level. Someone come in, come into hospital with a lactate of six, and you can normalise it. Other people can come into a hospital with a lactate of three or four, and you can't get it down to the less than two. So again, what? Uh, so there's no magic number to aim for. It, but how it is is the responsiveness. What we do know is that a lactate is associated with increased mortality. Lactate in association with hypotension is associated with even greater mortality. And last but not least, it's the clearance of lactate that's very important. Uh, so lactate is a key investigation in your septic patients, but also your trauma patients and your seizure patients. Because what you want to show is you're normalising that lactate. And uh, much like giving IV fluids, and it's part of that's a continued assessment. And it's your continued assessment of the adequacy of the circulation. 
And where do you think is the future of sepsis? Where is current research? And what do you think may be some of the changes that are going to come in the next five to ten years? Uh, I think uh, immunotherapy. I think genetics in sepsis is very, very important. Why is it that we can have a, a dorm full of university students uh, and one or two people of them get meningococcal septicemia, uh, but the, the rest of the dorm are actually are all walking around with it in their nares? So why, why are some people more susceptible uh, to sepsis than others? Uh, and I think that's to do with genetics. So I think that would be uh, is one of the, the, the future interests for sepsis. So I thought we would move on, if you don't mind, Uh, and you are a professor of healthcare improvement. So I I wanted to speak to you about how we could improve healthcare in the emergency department. So how do you think we are doing and what do you think we could be doing better? Uh, So it's it's very difficult uh, for me as an outsider who's only invited down to the emergency department, say, once every blue moon, thankfully, uh, to to criticise it. So... uh, my response to that question would be I'd turn it around. I'd say, OK, Owen, what keeps you awake at night? Because <laughs> what, 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 you'll, what cha- <laughs> you'll know what the challenges are of working in an emergency department. I can have assumptions, but I don't work with there on a daily basis. Uh, so if I was trying to help an emergency department improve their, their processes, I would first of all ask, OK, what's your biggest challenge? What's keeping you up at night? Uh, and then, because it could be anything from patient flow, it could be uh, alarm fatigue. And one of the things I always notice when I walk down to the ED is a number of alarms just ding, ding, dinging and no one paying any attention to them. Uh, there's also, there's the, uh, my thoughts are there, I must be pre-alert of fatigue as well. You know, lots of diseases now that uh, are pre-alerted that weren't pre-alerted in the past. So what, what's definitely in a medical emergency, how do we get over that? Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues um, is certainly the overcrowding. I think it's getting Mm -hmm. busier and busier and more and more stressful. And I think some of the targets that have maybe been set, um, I think, in the Scottish Patient Safety Mm Programme, I think we're we're finding it a little bit hard sometimes to achieve those targets, you know, with Mm -hmm. um, frequency of observations, inputting the data, Mm -hmm. and just keeping patients safe in in overcrowded EDs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if you'd had any thoughts on how we address that and what we do in the future. So the the Scottish Patient Safety Programme, the the targets from that is about vital sign reliability. The targets for four-hour weights and and all the other things eh, eh, is different, and that's that's government set. I think we have to remember why we're doing things. Okay, we're we're not doing things to input data to computer and to write data for the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. You're put inputting data. You're recording vital signs because it matters for the patients. It goes back to the importance of the National Early Warning Scoring System. We now know through this very well validated tool that if you score a, a, a medium or high clinical risk, namely your news is greater than five, you're at increased risk of unanticipated ICU admission uh, and death. Okay, so the purpose of repeating vital signs measurement is not to satisfy some edict from upon high, is because actually this well-validated tool says that this patient has abnormal physiology, we need to correct the abnormal physiology, and the only way we can correct it is by remeasuring and continual reassessment of the patient. So our interaction as a healthcare professional with patients is not just a one-off, 
there's a cont continuity. And if that patient is going to stay in the ED or that patient is then going to move down to the uh, acute medical unit, we need to know what their vital signs were prior to move uh, and we need to know whether there's going to be uh, any deterioration. And that's why I need to repeat the vital signs because someone may come in well, but if they're stuck waiting in a corridor for a bed, they could deteriorate en route. So one of your other uh, interests is quality improvement mm -hmm. and quality improvement projects. So I was wondering what is the best message you could give to trainees about quality improvement? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, that quality improvement is part of your ARC-P as a trainee. Uh, it's part of your revalidation process and, and it's recommended by the, by the GMC. So we all have to be involved in, in quality improvement. The second thing to say is it's not really that much different from what we've been doing before. Uh, we're all aware of the audit cycle. Uh, and as a consultant who's been there for 13 years, what I've seen is trainees come along every six months to a year and uh, we do an audit. And if you pardon the French, we find out we're crap at it. Uh, and then we go, oh, that's bad. And we'll have a meeting and we sort it out. And really then what normally happens is we do something there may be a slight improvement, but then in the end, we go back to baseline. It's the change is not sustainable. Okay, Quality improvement is about making that change sustainable because the current model or the old model would happen is we'd make change after an audit and then another trainee would come on two years later, we'd measure it and we're still rubbish at it. Okay, So I actually think that quality improvement is all about sustainable change. It's about the importance of measurement over time and it's all about making small-scale changes. Uh, the... I used to be the lead clinician for critical care in GGNC, and in those days what would happen, it was the great and the good would sit in a committee room, we'd say, okay, we want to make critical care safer, we want to make ED safer. Uh, and we'd come out with a, a protocol, or, you know, and we'd all design it, and we'd say, from tomorrow, we're going and do it. At that stage, we didn't really ask the, the trainees, the nurses, uh, is this workable? It was, we all got these edicts from upon high saying you must do this, you must wash your hands, okay, you must do X, Y and Z. Uh, quality improvement is about is actually about taking hypotheses and testing under a variety of conditions. And then that, what will happen is you'll bring people along with you, you'll find out about what works well, why, for whom, under what circumstances, and then take that uh, to your challenges. It's just a, bit, a different way to implement and ensure it's done sustainably. So do you think there are any pressing issues in the ED critical care interface that we maybe don't do so great that would could be addressed by a good quality improvement project? Can you give any ideas for us? Uh, so, well, there's, again, there's lots of potential. Uh, every clinical area has got room to, to improve. Okay, and the first thing is we've got to acknowledge that. So again, with that question, I would, I would put it back to you again, what keeps you awake at night? So, uh, but let's say for angst, what, what do I think could maybe be improved within uh, EDs would maybe be uh, the management of a major trauma call. Okay, I think if I'm being entirely uh, honest, it's, it's person dependent. It depends on the clinical leadership of the ED doctor uh, on that day. And some ED consultants or some intensivists that are involved uh, are kind of more au fait with that kind of management uh, and others aren't. So what we need is a structured approach to the management of the trauma patient, that when people come in, they've all got assigned roles and responsibilities. And I know some of the audience will be sitting, yeah, we already do that, but do we really do it reliably? Can we say that every time someone comes into Glasgow Royal Infirmary or into my own hospital, the Royal Alexander Hospital, that they get the exact same uh, trauma management? Do we know exactly when to give the tranexamic acid? 
the easy way to find these things out is we can ask five people why. Why do you do this way and you do it? If five people can't all give you the same answer, you don't have a reliable process. But uh, I think um, maybe trauma calls would be a good thing to try and improve. And I think also the importance of good communication. Uh, communication we know is done notoriously badly. Uh, and again, I think there's there's a lot of, with the transitions in care you get from the emergency departments, from clinicians to uh, ED docs to physicians, surgeons, across nursing staff, uh, a lot of things are, are missed. And how could we improve communication? Is it a checklist type driven way of communicating the important parts of, of, of a resuscitation or is it teaching individuals to be better communicators generally or a bit of both? I think it's probably all of the above. I think what first of all you need is, is a structured approach. So SBAR, so situation, background, assessment and recommendation. If a trainee from the ED phoned me up and said the situation is we've got a 45-year-old man in respiratory failure. His background is he has a significant asthma, he's hospitalised three or four times a year and he's on home nebulizers. Uh, my assessment is his respiratory rate, this is the saturation of that, his gas, this, and these are his vital sign parameters. And then my recommendation is that he'd maybe benefit from coming to intensive care and being intubated and ventilated. I know exactly what's going on there. If I have someone going, oh, I've got this guy, he's got, he's got bad asthma, uh, he's struggling to breathe, I need to know all the information so I can actually uh, allocate resources in a timid fashion. The other thing that we can do to make uh, communication better would be the importance of things like teach back. You know, so if I say do something, you repeat what I said, then I know uh, what to do. Uh, we can, within the operating room, we have things like uh, the WHO checklist. Part of the package of care that comes to WHO checklist is the surgical pause and the surgical brief in the morning. And that's ensuring that everyone that's in the trauma room or the ED resource room that day Everyone who's going to be involved knows each, each other's names. When we uh, assign tasks, we assign it to person. We don't assign it to thin air. So I say, uh, Owen, can you get venous access and cross-match some blood? Owen, can you give a fluid challenge? If I just say, give a fluid challenge, who does that? You, me, the nurse. We need to. So that's why communication has to be important. I was also reading that you have an interest in palliative care and alleviating distress. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, how do we do in the ED and how could we do it better? Uh, well, you know as well as I, I know is that uh, we're very good at palliative care uh, with regards to patients with cancer. Uh, but also I think what we need to do is we need to become what I would say is conversation ready. We need to start discussing over the, the, the dinner table uh, people's end of life care wishes. Would they wish CPR? Would they wish to go to uh, intensive care afterwards? Uh, I think we, we assume uh, the medical profession and the lay people, we assume that uh, part of care means we're giving up. It doesn't mean that. There's, there's a beautiful study uh, called the Temel study where they, uh, they took patients, I think, with, with uh, small cell lung cancer and they allocated these patients to two groups. Group one got your normal oncologist, Group two got your normal oncologist uh, and a part of care physician from day one. Okay, not when they were at end of life. The group that got the part of care physician involved early, those patients had a better quality of life, they lived longer and had less technical interventions. 
Okay, because just because we can do things to people doesn't mean it's always a correct thing. So I think as a nation, we need to start discussing end of life care wishes. Uh, we have to have make it normal to for people. We say have the chat about organ donation over a cup of tea. Uh, we should have the chat at home with our families and our loved ones about end of life care wishes. Would you wish CPR? Would you wish to go uh, to ICU? I think we have to be realistic to patients about the reversibility. Uh, of their illness uh, and I think we have to uh, have the, the discussions around DNA CPR and ensure that the patients understand that why and again they go home with the DNA CPR as form as well. So we like to ask our audience for questions so we've got a few random questions okay. just at the end so we spatter things so first up is uh, from Connor Mulholland and he asks what are your key things you look for when accepting a patient for ICU and what are the things that will make you refuse a patient period? Uh, so <laughs> I think the, the, the most important thing is for any referrals can I make this patient better? Do they have a reversible illness? If they, they don't have a reversible illness, there's not much I can do. I think if we came to the state of, in society where everyone died uh, being attached to a ventilator, I think what we would do then would be, could be causing more harm than good. Uh, yes, you could give everyone a trial of ventilation, but actually uh, there'd be two unanticipated consequences from that. One could be actually if the patient's going to die anyway, is that the correct thing to do? Are we allowing them to suffer? The second uh, one, and I think that's very important coming from a national health service, is if we put everyone in a ventilator, what's going to happen to quality of life? Are we going to be able to do things like uh, knee replacements? You know, because knee replacements, hip replacements have a huge impact in society, get people back to work, get people back to being productive. If we spend all our time trying to uh, inevitably prolong life, and when actually when it should be the quality of life we should be trying to improve, uh, we may be doing more harm than good. So you mentioned earlier that you used to be the clinical lead for critical care in the whole of Glasgow. Yep. So Mike Gillespie asks, um, what was the most challenging thing about that role? And how do you lead a group of highly educated, highly opinionated professionals at the peak of their careers? How do you keep them all happy? Uh, good, good question. And to be honest, uh, I'd say a managerial role uh, or my, my kind of academic role of trying to make people change practice is far more challenging than, than being one of a simple doctor. Uh, people think being uh, an intensive care doctor is very complicated and very difficult. That's actually easy to do rather than actually getting a group of individuals to change. Uh, I think we have to remember why we're doing things. So uh, a good a podcast for your viewers to watch is the, the, the TED Talks. Uh, and one of them is called The Golden Circles by Simon Sinek. And what he does and what I now do is he talks about how great leaders inspire action. He says what most people do, they tell you what to do. They occasionally tell you how to do it. And last but not least, if they ever do, they tell you why you're doing it. What Simon Sinek says is that great leaders in high-performing organisations do things out a different way inside out. They first of all tell you why you should be doing things. Then they tell you how to do it. And last but not least, they tell you what to do. So I'll give you two of his, his examples. Example one is Apple computing. So if you think about apples, uh, they, they, their why is... Uh, everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo and thinking differently. How do we do that? We do that by creating things that are beautifully designed and user-friendly. What do we do? 
We just happen to make phones and computers. You're far more likely to buy a computer uh, or a phone from Apple as a result of that marketing. Same for a uh, Barack Obama when he got elected. I don't know if you remember his, but his catchphrase was "Yes, we can." Okay, yes, we can make the United States uh, a better place to live and grow old. Okay, he focused on the why. So when I kind of get a, a group of opinionated, uh, highly educated individuals. Uh, I think they need to understand the why we're doing something, first of all. If you give them the why, and I ask again if I gave you the question, what keeps you up at night? Because if, if I'm I wanted, still not going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, if I know that you're interested in doing that, if me trying to force my opinion is not going to work and it's not going to be sustainable. But if I say, okay, what, what really worries you about your clinical practice? Uh, I'm pushing an open door. So I, I would... Uh, if you want to change people and change management, focus on the why, then the how, and finally the what to do. So I always like to finish these podcasts with a final question for myself, and that's, that is, if you could go back in time and speak to your junior self just starting out, leaving university, what would be the best piece of advice you could give them? And it could be clinical or non-clinical. What would you pass on? Uh, first of all, enjoy. Uh, I think... Uh, the importance of joining a workplace we cannot uh, underestimate. If you enjoy your work uh, and you make your working environment a good place to work, you will improve recruitment and tension of staff. Okay. Uh, the second thing is positive role models. Uh, you know, I remember starting off, you'd say, oh, medicine's a rubbish career, medicine this, medicine that. Actually, medicine's a very good career. You know, by the end of your career, you're on a, a six-figure salary uh, and uh, your job's a privilege. Uh, so I'd first of all enjoy, enjoy your work. Uh, if you're bright enough to get into medicine uh, from high school, you're bright enough to f- pass any of your postgraduate exams. I think that's very important as well. And last but not least is uh, never say never. Uh, going back, I had no intentions of ever being becoming an academic. I had no intention of being a national clinical lead. Uh, I, my, my, my job was uh, I was a train, I was a junior doctor. I then oh, I wanted to do critical care and then I wanted to be a consultant. I don't actually ever stand up one day and say I wanted to do all the things that I've done. I just took took each day as it came. Going back to the the, the phrase at start, if you see a wall, throw your hat over it, go and get go, go and get your hat. I think that's very important is to try out everything once. And and in your case, was it just a matter of trying something? Did these opportunities arise and you just thought, I'm just going to try that? So is there is there value in if opportunities arise, try them, you never know where it might well, take well, you? And, and, and that's what I really want to get across. A lot of people say no. Say, would you like to do this? You'd like to get involved in an audit? Would you like to get involved in X, Y, and Z or an improvement project? And a lot of people say, oh, no, I'm studying for my exam. I'm studying for this. Yes, you can study for your exam, but it's, a, it's important that you've got a variety of, of strings to your bow. So uh, I think, you know, we always ask a busy man uh, and a busy man is someone who's successful and has tried things out. Uh, and again, you know, you don't know you're not going to like something until you've tried it out. So uh, I think when people, when opportunities present themselves, be it to be involved in an improvement project, to be involved in research, uh, to be involved about how we can make things differently, uh, volunteer, put your head above the parapet and uh, try and make a difference. 
Professor Rooney or Kevin, sorry, it's I okay. should say thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. I should probably finish with uh, the fact that I actually sleep brilliantly at night <laughs> and there's nothing that keeps me awake, which isn't exactly true, but we'll not go there. Uh, but look, thank you very, very much. Any any last parting um, thoughts? I think you've probably left us with, with a, a nice bunch there, but anything you'd like to finish with? I know. I thanks a lot for... Uh, inviting me along here today uh, and uh, it seems like a very good thing so I'd encourage you to continue with your podcast uh, again going back to try everything once I think this is a good medium to learn and well done many thanks indeed so a huge thank you to Professor Rooney for his very insightful conversation and um, there were so many points raised but I think the main ones for me were in relation to sepsis um, recognition is probably best done using the National Early Warning Scoring System and if someone scores highly then ask yourself could this be infection related. Treatment is early antibiotics and fluid guided by vital signs, lactate clearance and an assessment of circulation which could include capillary refill, passive leg raise or echocardiography if you have the skills. From a healthcare improvement point of view ask yourself what keeps you awake at night or what are the department challenges and these could be a great starting point for quality improvement projects in your department. From a palliative care point of view, just because we can do things doesn't mean it's always the right thing to do, so consider what is necessary and valuable to your patient. And finally a couple of non-clinical pearls, so make sure your workplace is an enjoyable place to be and this will help with recruitment and retention of staff. And on a personal level, make sure that you try new things because you never know where it might lead you. Please visit stmungos-ed.com where you can find the show notes with lots of links to stuff that has been discussed in this podcast, as well as lots of other educational resources. Many thanks again to Professor Rooney. Many thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>